You're listening to the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute, a podcast where we discuss both the hobby and business sides of collecting. I'm your host, Mike Summer, and I want to help you buy, sell, and trade your way into a collection you'll love. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute. Today, I am bringing on a guest, and that guest is DJ Kazmerzak. DJ is the VP of Sales and Product Development for Panini, but prior to that, as you'll hear in the interview, he spent a lot of time elsewhere in the industry, and so he has a lot of industry experience at a variety of companies for the last several years at Panini, and we talk about a whole variety of things. We're going to cover product life cycles, we're going to talk about retail hoarding, we're going to talk about how Panini is attempting to balance the uh, increasing supply to meet the growing demand without overproducing things, and we're going to finally talk a little bit about some of their other online offerings. So I think you're going to really enjoy that conversation, and we're going to get it started right after I remind you to check out Underdog Collectibles. They're an online shop run by collectors for collectors. They break three nights a week on Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday. They also have some singles available. But if you want to get in on any of their breaks, this week they're going to be breaking a variety of products, including several Panini products like Encased Basketball, Phoenix Football, and, and then also Topps Dynasty. Check them out at udogcollect.com and tell them Wax Pack Hero sent you. All right, here's my conversation with DJ. DJ, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I appreciate you taking the, the time to, to come and chat a little bit about some of these uh, questions that are on a lot of collectors' minds. Uh, I know they're at least on my mind. Maybe we can start by just getting a little bit more of your background. I know you've been at Panini for a while now, but that is not your first stop in the hobby. So maybe we can start by just hearing a little bit more about your background. Yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little older than most people in this industry now. So my elevator speech is slightly longer, but I'll just, I'll make it very quick. I've been in the industry, in this industry, uh, collectibles for about 25 years plus. I got into it. I was in sports television is how I started my sports career. And uh, I was dabbling with an advertising agency in North Carolina where I was based at the time. And that would be the Impel company um, that got an NFL license back in the early 90s when they were kind of being handed out to anybody who was willing to pay for them. And right. I got involved in trading cards and I'd always collected as a kid. Um, and at the time I was like, do I, do I want to be in television you know, the, forever. It, it turned out I loved it and I still love parts of it, but it's a young person's business. And quite frankly, it doesn't pay great. It's so competitive. And so you start thinking about things as you, you know, as you move through your career. So anyway, I morphed into trading cards that way. And I went to work for then Skybox because Impel became Skybox. Skybox was eventually purchased by Marvel to be merged with Fleer which is how I ended up in FLIR in the mid-90s. I worked at FLIR from 94 to 2002. Okay. I took a couple of years off to earn my master's in business administration as an adult, and then I went to work for Press Pass in Charlotte, North Carolina, a small NASCAR company. I think that's where a lot of people actually first became aware of me because that's where I went into sales full speed. And then I joined Panini um, in August of 2012. I joined as the 
vice president of sales at the time and in 2015 added the product development managerial responsibility as well. So that's kind of in a nutshell. Very cool. Speaking of product development, that kind of leads to my first question. And one of the things that comes up from time to time in hobby circles is, you know, something will happen and we'll see that a new product comes out and that product does not reflect the player being on a certain team or a signing of a draft pick or some of those types of things. Or we'll see an uh, a more generic jersey versus the jersey that 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 person um, is wearing today. And I think part of that is a lack of understanding or a lack of the realization of what the product life cycle is and, and the ramp up time and the onboard time that it takes to get a product from planning into production and distribution. Can you give us a little bit of a feel like how far in advance are are the products that you're releasing started in planning and then kind of all the way through to what's that last point where you can make a change realistically before it is produced and packaged? So the life cycle in total is about nine months in total. Um, we, we kick the product off. So, you know, you, if you're, if you've got a brand, let's just say, uh, let's, let's pick prism as an example. So you release a prism product and really after it's been out for about eight weeks, you're getting ready to start planning next year's version already, right? So, um, so we get a little bit of sales data based on what's happening with that product. Of course, now it's pretty much everything evaporates. But so you, you start the process at nine months. In, in earnest, it really starts to pick up speed at about six months, if you will. Um, the final sales forecast is due at eight weeks, so two months out, if you will, from the ship date. As far as making changes, you're really locked in at 12 weeks. But if you've got like one of the 10 people that we know moves the meter, you know, in in a sport, you can change the photo out on the base card right up to that eight week mark, more or less. You might be able to adjust the autograph card, especially if it was hard autos and you printed those ahead of time. But you could reflect the photo change on the, on the base card. And our league partners are usually pretty good with us on flexibility in terms of that. In other words, if there's any consistency between the base card and then a, you know, an autograph card or an insert card, it's okay because they, they recognize that we're trying to reflect um, an up-to-date, you know, player move, but it's a, it's a long process. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people in, in the industry really don't think about. They think because it's paper, you know, that you can print it pretty quick and that sort of thing. But now, especially with the technology that we use with a lot of OptiChrome products, those take much longer to manufacture due to the, the foils and, and all the different things. So the life cycle is longer than I think most people would expect. And, um, but, you know, as a company, we try to be as aggressive as we can to reflect the most accurate roster or, you know, team changes it's possible. We know that like when Tom Brady changed teams, you know, in the, in the spring, early summer, we quickly tried to Photoshop, you know, with the NFL's approval, sure. the change. And because we know how important it was. And I think you remember at the time, his first base card, uh, you know, was going for, I think 50 or $60, a simple base card out of, I don't know, it was out of score or out of prestige, I think. So and, and it, so that, that just demonstrates to you in that short period of time how important 
or how much people are excited to see a player of that caliber in a new uniform, particularly after 20 years in the same uniform, right? So, but it's a long process. What would you say for your team is the most challenging aspect of getting that product ready to be out the door? Is it, in my mind, I would think it is the autograph content. But um, I'm yeah. curious to hear from you what, what your thought is it, on that. It can vary. Um, approvals sometimes can take a while, um, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. Um, when you're working with a partner for the first time, um, you know, it, you've got to go through kind of the trust factor. Like with our long-term term or long-time partners like the NFL and the NBA, there's much more comfort level there now. But now as we enter, let's say, this UFC license that we've just acquired that starts in January, you know, the next year we'll, they'll be, it'll be a little bit more methodical as we learn what they're really sensitive to. And, of course, they'll learn what we're trying to, let's just say, push the envelope on a little bit, if you will. And so you have to find that, that trustworthy area. But, yeah, autograph, the reason autographs would be number one is because we don't control it. Right. Any, anything that we control, we don't have a problem with that because if that just means I've got to put in a, a different process in the company or I've got to get on a group to make sure they're following the process at the proper time, I, 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 we can control that. Right. The stuff that we can't control when you send cards out to a player and they disappear or they just decide they're going to take seven weeks to sign instead of, you know, a week or whatever that, Yes, that, that throws in a bit of a monkey wrench into your plans because we've got it planned out that they should theoretically have enough time to sign every player. We don't just drop these cards on them at the last minute. But listen, there are a lot of times, particularly if the season's going on, they're busy, the rookies in particular, because they're the ones who typically have the most amount of autographs to sign. But let's just say like the year that Russell Wilson was a rookie, um, you know, he was a third-round draft pick when it started and at, at, during the summer. He had plenty of time to sign because at that point he was well behind Matt Flynn on the death chart. But by the time the season started and he was the starter, all of a sudden he didn't have time to sign anymore. So then everything that was outstanding got pushed basically three, four months because Russell was like, I got to get in the playbook and I got to spend all my time looking at film because now I'm the starting quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks. So you can't control those things. So yes, that, that is the one element that because we run 7 million autographs a year through the process and we don't have full control over those. They can cause some of the delays that, you know, customers see. So 7 million autographs a year across all of the, the sports. Yep. Yeah. That That's is a lot of autographs. Portfolio. It is. I mean, it's, it's one of those that, and again, you know, it's one of those things when, when I'm at summits or I'm at events or people are emailing me or texting me or calling me out on social media or whatever, that, that's the one thing that, you know, sometimes I, I, I want people to try to imagine the context because to service the industry that we now have, and the industry has grown, right? We're all happy. We're having great, a great run, 18 months, two years, and it looks like it's going to keep going on. But to service that, it takes a lot of elements and production elements and investment, if you will. You know, if I told you the average autograph cost, and I'm not going to do that, but if I told you, you could now roll up to what we spend a year on autographs and you have to put that money out before you ever get the, the product back and sold, right? So that's an upfront cost. And so it's an investment is what it is. And yeah. so, you know, our company makes investments all the time. And 
And so, um, but it's a, it's a massive project now. Um, I mean, the business since I've, since I've been here has grown five times the size it was when I, when I came in August of 12 and that's a, in an eight year period, that's massive growth. Speaking of that growth and the, the run that we've had over the last few years, one of the, the impacts to that has been hoarding retail product or a shortage of retail product on, on retail shelves, however you want to look at that. Yep. When, you know, for years, hobby was the focus for, for many collectors. Retail was more of an afterthought. But as the last few years have led to an increase in the price of hobby box content and hobby cases, the value proposition of a $20 blaster box or a, a $10 hanger box or whatever it might be, all of a sudden has shifted a little bit. Yes. And that has led to there not being a lot of product on the shelves at any given time, like we used to see, you know, maybe four or five years ago. I know that it is on your radar as a, as a manufacturer, what is going on. Can you help paint a little bit of a picture for what control that you guys actually have over that process? What, what influence can you have as a manufacturer on how that retail product is uh, distributed? Yes. So first of all, there's only one way in to get your product distributed into Target and into Walmart. And that's through the two category managers that service each account, right? And I think a lot of people listening probably know who they are. If they've been watching social media lately, I'm sure they knew who they are because they get called out quite a bit. Excel Marketing in Des Moines, Iowa services the Target account and MJH, uh, MJ Holdings in Chicago, Illinois services, the Walmart account. They have other accounts too, some regional accounts, but those are their two main accounts. So obviously to get in there, we have to partner with them um, to get our product in there. So it, the control I have, or we have, is, it, is to either sell them product or not sell them product, or sell them less product or sell them more product, right? It's, it's, it, that, that's my choice. and it's a partnership. We, we talk to them quite a bit about, you know, the, the challenges that are going now and that sort of thing. First of all, I want to say, because I know a lot of times I spend a lot of time on social media, many people watching it probably seen me respond and all that. I'd like to respond more, but the problem is a lot of times people want to take what you say and they want to twist it a little bit, or they want to interpret it the way they want to. We are empathetic to the fact that right now you basically have to make an appointment to go into retail to buy product. I'm very well aware of that, right? That's not, it's not really our goal. It's not what we wanted to do, but we're in a situation that you've seen in many categories before, whether it's Beanie Babies, Funko, Cabbage Patch Dolls, Pick a Toy Line, Funko, you, you name it, right? Where the demand has been so off the charts that people will line up for it. Put in a COVID crisis with working from home, massive layoffs, whatever you want to call it, more people have time now to go sit in a Walmart or a Target parking lot or on an aisle and wait for somebody to come in and put the product out, right? I mean, there's all these things that have changed from nine months ago, if you will. Um, but the reality is there are factors now that we have to deal with. So what we do is, is you know, I'm appreciative of when people um, send me um, concerns um, and, and particularly if they have some, some video or some pictures um, to accompany it to give me some sort of context. 
because without context, you can basically say whatever you want. And, and, you know, I've got to take your word for it, or I've got to take my partner's word for it. Right. And, and listen, I trust my partners. If you, if you accuse MJH or Excel of being underhanded, I'll just use that word. You're accusing me and my company of being underhanded as well. They're an extension of us. So we take this very seriously. So I don't want people to think we don't. But the bottom line is the demand is so high now. We have done a number of things. We've changed the service schedule in all of the stores. We've asked whenever possible, and it's not always possible, whenever possible to do the sets after hours. Uh, if the rep can go in after hours, meaning at night or early in the morning before the store opens and set it. And then that way they're out of the store. Cause listen, they're getting, they're getting accosted as well when they're in the right. store and they, they're not, they're not digging it. I'll just be honest with you. So we've looked at that. We changed the, the, the schedule. So in other words, if they did in, in Chicago, they did these stores on Thursday and these stores on Friday, they've reversed it. They've reversed the time of day they go in. They've tried to change things up. But the bottom line is people are just waiting and, you know, clearly we're trying to avoid reps letting people know or giving visibility to certain people about what time they're going to be at a store. When we're aware of that, we can confirm it. We do address it. Um, and discipline is, is uh, handed out. I, I don't want to say what that is. That's not my business. It's the, the, those companies' business. But so we've addressed it as, as best we can. But the bottom line is, is that, and listen, we've increased you know, we've increased our production of retail product. So it's not like we didn't respond to it. We have, but the demand is just so much greater than the supply. And it's, you know, listen, I'd rather have that problem than the problems that we had in the past, you know, when there wasn't demand, but it's, it's a public relations uh, challenge. There's no question about it. I don't like as a salesperson, you never want a disappointed customer. That's not your goal. Your goal is that everybody's happy and that you can provide, you know, entertainment for those who want to be entertained. So this has been a, a very tricky one, but I mean, we do have conversations, um, a lot of conversations with both partners. I've had conversations directly with some of Excel's reps because they work directly for Excel. I've had conversations with the Anderson group, which is a third party that MJ employees. So I've had some conversations. I've presented some data. I've done a little bit of coaching myself and I've let them know kind of our point of view and our perspective of how it can affect our, our business and, you know, our perception with our customers. So everybody knows what's at stake here in terms of, you know, the perception and, and delivering the product and giving people an opportunity to buy it. These are just unprecedented times, but I do want everybody to know we don't, we, we don't, just discount this and act like it's not happening and act like it's not, you know, a challenge for us. Um, we recognize that it is, but there's only so much that you can do. Once I sell the product to someone, I, I, after that, I can't really tell them what to do. I have minimum advertised pricing policies in place. And as long as they adhere to those, that's more of a ho hobby function, but as long as they adhere to those, I can't tell them legally what to do with the product at that point. Right. I'm sort of bound a little bit. So my choices are don't sell those two people product. And then I attempt to sell it all direct through the internet. Um, that doesn't seem like a very viable option to me. So that's you kind had, of it. Go ahead. I was gonna say you had touched on there. Um, the fact that you have bumped 
the production levels to, mm -hmm. to try to meet some of that demand. And that impacts yeah. both hobby content as well as retail content, right? So what, do you, what are your thoughts around how Panini goes about balancing that growing demand with an increasing supply without there being too much supply that gets us to what many would call a, a second junk wax era yep. type of situation. And so we want to, like you had said, you want to meet as much of that demand as possible, make as many customers as happy as possible, getting cards for them to open and enjoy and collect. But you also have talked about wanting to not oversupply the market as well. How do you go about working towards that, finding that balance? So the difference, first of all, the difference between what's happening now and what happened in the mid nineties is the exclusives. The fact that you have manufactured exclusives, you're not going to have a repeat of when everybody went crazy and just made too many cards because you had multiple licensees and they, you know, they would all try to take advantage of the situation. And at the time the, the league partners were, you know, were obviously hopeful that everybody could, hit the financial goals they were talking about. It's different when you're in, in an exclusive arrangement, particularly long-term ones like the ones that we're in um, it, with the NBA and the NFL. You know that you have to protect your marketplace long-term because you're in it for a long period of time. So what I'm saying is, is that you have built-in responsibility because you control your environment. But we talk about this quite a bit. And, and one of the reasons that we made the change five years ago, um, bringing product development underneath my umbrella along with sales. One, I have experience in it because I was in product development when I first came in the industry. But two, sales and PDT and trading card companies typically are adversarial, right? Because sales comes in and says, we hey, make more, we need more. PDT saying we got to protect the integrity of the brands and the products. So there's always a wrestling match. Well, now I'm the referee of the two teams a little bit. So it's actually led to a great collaboration. Um, you know, our team works together very well, but th this is what we talk about. We talk about, you know, the, the greater good, if you will, and then how do we balance the assets that we, that we have? Because, again, you have somewhat of a limitation on autographs. Now, the nice thing is that one of our goals a few years ago was to try to recreate value in parallel cards. And fortunately, mm -hmm. we've been able to do that, right? Now, the Prism brand is is known for that. Mosaic is now known for that. I mean, so the good news is, is that we have created some additional value and secondary market value with cards that are basically paper and ink and printing techniques as opposed to autographs and memorabilia. So that has allowed us to extend production runs out, you know, a little bit because they're not as reliant on autographs and mem as a National Treasures is and some of the other brands. But the bottom line is long-term, you've got to have new users, right? You've got to get new users because that's the way things work. You've got to cycle new people in as people leave the, the hobby industry for whatever the reasons are later on. And, you know, to do that, that, that usually occurs in a retail environment where a parent typically buys a single item of something and you call it shut up money or whatever. There's lots of terms sure. that people use for it. Sure. And it's, you know, when your child's there making all kinds of noise and you want them to be quiet, you, you, you grab something. And that's kind of, you know, that's kind of how trading cards sort of works. Um, you know, or our sticker and album business as well, you know, that we do. And, and, and so retail is a viable part, but let's make no mistake. 
about what is our core business. Our core business is our hobby product. It always has been. It always will be. It is the most intriguing product. It is the most you know interesting product. It is the product that people are most passionate about. Um, and quite frankly, it has the most value in it in terms of cards for the potential secondary market. So hobby is still number one. So, I mean, we start with that. We look at, we look at the hobby first. And by that, I mean all aspects of it, the online piece of it, our regular distribution through our hobby distributors, our direct to consumer business case breaking is part of all of that. Um, so we look at everything as a complete big picture. And then we try to figure out what is the best way to move assets around because there is a limitation. We will push where we think it makes sense. But again, we're watching to make sure that we keep collectability. You always have to have that in the back of your mind. The good news is there's more collectors and interest in our industry now, which allows you to move up. But let's just say some of that goes away in the next 12 to 18 months as COVID kind of calms down. Eventually we get a vaccine and then people can go back to attending other entertainment areas so some of that money funnels back out then yeah we'll have to make adjustments probably in a different direction but for now based on what's happening at retail like what we just talked about we're not even close to meeting the demand look at the secondary market prices right. on hobby product the WNBA product released this week it's a $92 wholesale box it's trading for $400 already it just right. released it just released 2 days ago I get it. There's a hot rookie in there, you know, Sabrina, but it's still, it just tells you we're not even close to the demand at this point. Yeah. That hits on a, a couple things. I guess, first of all, can, is there anything that you can share to give us a general sense of how production has increased in the last year or so to help meet some of that demand? Or is that not something that you can really. Uh, yeah. About? I don't know if I want to put percentage on the reason why is because everybody looks at it differently like sure. i'll give you an example right if you make if you make uh 95 of something and 100 people want it then you're yep. probably in pretty good shape because there's five people who aren't going to get it right but if you make two of something but only one person wants it you're in trouble because yep. you've made 50% too many, but you made 95 of this and two of this. So yep. it's, everybody has a different perception when you throw out numbers about production. I will tell you that clearly we've increased production this year. And, and so has all the other manufacturers. I, I can guarantee. And if you haven't, you're kind of being short-sighted if you yep. haven't increased your production. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that feeds into another piece that you just talked about with the Prism Wholesale, the WNBA Prism Wholesale and what it's already mm -hmm. selling at, you know, there's clearly, there's clearly things that you guys are trying to do to help take full advantage of the current market that we're seeing, right? And that's, that's yep. part of good business. But there's also a recognition that things may not always be this way. And at some point, we may see somewhat of a slow, slow down or a, a pullback. And Yep. What are your thoughts around the, the, that idea of we want to take full advantage of this market that we find ourselves in, but at the same time, not bury ourselves if things start to slow down? Yeah. So, I mean, again, that's like I said, it, it ties back into the fact that I think the long-term exclusive contracts that, you know, uh, Tops has one on the baseball side, on the property side too, right? So it's not just us. Um, you know, it, 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 you have to 
you have to have a long-term strategy along with a short-term strategy. And I think that's probably what's different about the industry now versus 20 years ago. 20 years ago, it was pretty much get what you can now and, and, and don't worry about later because nobody knew what later was really going to look like. This industry is, is now um, very different. Um, it, you know, if you remember, Mike, it wasn't that long ago that the internet was bad for our industry, right? We used to go to the industry summit every year and the, and, and it was Dave and Adams and blow out, you know, they were bad. They were bad. <laughs> they Because people would walk in, it was the beginning of, you know, of, of iPhones and, androids and people would come in a store and they'd see a box price and they'd immediately look at their phone and they go well it's this price on you know on david adams site or whatever and and so for a long time we were resistant to the internet if you will instead of finding ways to embrace it and bring it into a brick and mortar and make it applicable like can you sell your customers uh singles that they're they don't want on ebay for them and take a cut and lots of other examples right so I think the industry now over the last 18 months, what I've seen is that in all areas of it, people now have embraced the fact that, okay, let's look at all the things we can do to enhance the business and, and, and create long-term sustainability. And the way you do that is create more interest and bring more, you know, customers and users into the category. So I think that's, I think that's happening on, on all levels of the business. Now for us, yeah, we look at it by brand typically is what we do. We have brand and brand heritage and things like that. And we, and we look at the life cycle of a brand and you get to a point where there are certain elements of the brand that are capped. Like if you've got parallels that are numbered to a certain number, five, 10, 50, pick a number, that's it. You're, you're capped there, right? So like national treasures, we've made the same amount of national treasures for the last three years because right. we're capped. Yeah. <laughs> and so what we tend to do is try to introduce more brands, right? Yep. So, so we don't, what we don't really do is it's funny, uh, you know, Mark kind of Mark, uh, Warsop, our CEO kind of addressed this in his conversation that was, you know, at broadcast during the summit. We don't, we don't really increase the runs of specific brands. We just add more brands to our portfolio because we believe that shorter, production runs on more brands is more effective than less brands with longer production runs because people, like I said, the perception of whether something is long or short is different for everybody, right? I could give you a number and tell you, this is how many cases I made of a product. You may say, wow, that's short. I could say that same thing to someone else in the industry. And then I go, wow, that's a lot. It's, it's totally open to interpretation. So the way we manage it is to continue to introduce uh, additional brands and and keep the production runs very tight on most of the brands that we do. One kind of final question on this topic, and I fully admit to start with, this is an idea that I was pondering, but I do not speak from that full knowledge of everything that it takes to produce a, a, a card or, or to produce a product. Okay. One of the things that I was wondering as a way to potentially address this whole concept of making sure there are some products that are available widely while still protecting that in that inherent value by not overproducing other content is is it at all feasible to take maybe one brand or one product from each sport and essentially just continue to print to order throughout the entire season and so what maybe hoops for basketball for instance 
You yep. start with your yep. initial order window. It sells out. You open up an additional order window for hoops. You produce another run of cases that, that meet that throughout the course of the season so that, yes, that product may not have a lot of high value, but it will be a product that collectors could find on the shelves throughout the entire year. You don't do that for every product, but like one for basketball, right. one for football, et cetera. Is that even a realistic opportunity or thing to consider in the current environment of how you partner with printers and how you partner with, you know, all of those planning cycles. I understand autograph content and memorabilia would be tough to, to do something like that with, but for a pure par unnumbered parallel or base cards or those types of things, is that even something that could be considered? It is, it is, and it is. And, and that's one of the reasons that last year we introduced a trading card element into our sticker and album collections for the NBA and NFL. I'm not sure if everybody's familiar with that. Before, it was just stickers and the album. We actually have now got a 100-card trading card set that's also inserted. Um, random cards are inserted into the packs. That's, that's why our box size changed a little bit and all that. Okay. Um, and we, we give you a collector box in the album so you can pull it off. There's a perforated thing. You take it out and then fold the box down so you can actually put your cards in there. But that was one of the reasons we introduced trading cards into that. There's a couple reasons. One, younger consumer. We want to get them introduced to trading cards as soon as possible to see if they like them and want to eventually move into that realm, right? But the other thing was we were trying to get a, a, an evergreen product that, quite frankly, we could go back if we needed to and reprint and restock. So we're now taking that a step further and we are looking at, you know, is there, do we go back and do a, a, you know, a product sort of like, let's just use the name complete, right? Where you do most of the players on a roster and it's just straight base cards, if sure. you will. Maybe you've got one level of parallel in there, it's, but it's not numbered, right? right? So you could, you could go back and do that. So we're definitely looking at it. Uh, so I would tell you that it, it is being considered. We are discussing it because, you know, we, we, we've heard not only from retail, but also from hobby shops are having some of the same challenges too, which, yeah. is why we've, which is why we've opened up some of these new products that we've created, like hobby hybrid products and box blasters and things that traditionally were only sold in retail accounts. We've introduced them into the direct program because um, we recognize that people are looking for a lower entry price, even if it's a $20 box or what's supposed to be a $20 box at 50 now, that's still right. an entry price when everything else is $500 or more, right? So, um, so the, the short term is yes, I, we don't have a definitive uh, final plan yet, but yes, we're considering that because the, everything has changed. I mean, and, and that is one of the challenges of the trading card business that we always had, particularly as you've added in autographs, mem, and now numbered parallels is you can't reprint. You, you can't. Yep. One of the other things that it seems like some manufacturers are doing and you have dabbled in yourselves at Panini is kind of a either subscription program for, for people yes. to subscribe to and get kind of a retail blaster box sent to them every month and maybe a small other uh, yep. mini set or something like that, which at least enables a, a something for somebody to open at close to MSRP, right? Because it's coming directly right. from you. Yep. Another thing that many yep. manufacturers have started to do is a on-demand program and you've got Panini Instant and, and there's that print to order aspect as well. 
how are the thoughts on that evolving at Panini as well? It seems like, you know, you've got the first off the line product for, for many releases, which is a, a slight difference in um, content from that product than others. Yep. And like I said, for, for yep. many things you do have the Panini Instant program, but not necessarily everything. How are you guys thinking about those opportunities as well to meet some of this demand? Yeah, so um, we we introduced at the industry summit a kids crate program that that we're going to put in play in Q one of next year. So that goes back to your kind of your subscription plan uh, that you're talking about. We're looking at some other things too. So we have we have started to put in plans and processes to get those things to fruition. So that's one thing on the instant, uh, you know, an on demand site side of the business. Um, that that honestly has been the, the side of the business that we were hoping or have been hoping would probably gain more traction. And it has, it's game. It's, it's a much bigger business than it was when it started, but surprisingly it hasn't jumped to the levels that, you know, I, I would have thought it would in certain with certain events or certain occurrences that happen. Um, it's interesting when you watch, you know, and I'll give a shout out to a competitor, but it's interesting when you watch a, Dr. Anthony Fauci card become one of the biggest selling single cards. Right. Sure. And it's like, it's like, okay. Um, he's, he's not an athlete, but I get it. He was a, you know, a famous sort of uh, important person at the time, but it's, it's interesting to see sort of how pop culture works that way, but it's an active part of what we do, you know, and, 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 and I like I like the fact that it's immediate. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, when, it, when, the Lakers clinched the championship, you know, the next day we had an, an, a championship set, if you will, and, and highlight cards and MVP cards and that sort of thing up for purchase. I, you know, I still think there's probably a visibility challenge and that, that falls under marketing, which we continue to do a lot of, we do more than anybody else in the industry, but clearly there's still a lot of people that don't know what we do. I mean, the fact that you're seeing stories now and, mainstream media. I saw ABC news ran a five minute story this week on our industry. And I have a lot of people that I know, you know, casually either from seeing them at the gym or, or wherever who go, I, I didn't know that was a thing. And every time I hear that, I go, ah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you know, you, you want everybody to know it's a thing. So, um, so that, that, that program is a big part of what we do, but it's still not, it still doesn't have the same cachet as regular branded products do. I mean, you just don't see the same reaction to it that, that collectors have towards a, you know, a prism box or, you know, a national, they just don't have the same thing. I mean, single cards are nice. You know, our, our biggest selling card to date, you're going to laugh, um, was the black cat on the, on the Meadowlands feel right, yep. you during the during the yep. giant game if you remember we did that black cat yep. card and that's the single biggest selling card we've had on that side so it's really weird when people want to buy i guess is what i'm saying yep that's great thank you so much for for coming on today i'm glad we got to hit on a lot of these things uh last little bit of feedback that i have for you is not really a yep. question but more of a statement is last week at the industry summit you had shared the preliminary NBA release calendar. Yes. And um, 
I, for one, really appreciate that. That's something that I like to do. I think the, the opportunity for me to be able to share that with some of my followers and listeners uh, was well received. I think I, I have like 8,000 TikTok views on the video that I did oh, nice. um, on that within the last nice. you know five days or whatever it's been um, since yeah. I put that out. And so that is something that collectors have an appetite to do. And okay. um, I would just say doing that more often for the other sports as well. We, we know that things are subject to change. We know that things might come up to um, cause some of those dates and things like that to shift. But having that kind of six month out view of what, what we're thinking might be coming and when we think it might be coming is helpful as well as those checklists a week or so out in advance of, of the release of the products. And I know, um, for all the manufacturers, that's been somewhat hit or miss. You know, sometimes we get those checklists a little further out in advance and sometimes it, the product might be out before we see a published checklist. Those are just a couple other pieces that I would say um, I wanted to, to share some of that feedback with you that I've heard yeah, from the, other the, collectors. The, the, the checklists obviously are tricky just because of the autograph piece. So that's a little, that's a little more, that one would go down to the wire more often. The schedules, you know, I, the 21 schedule next year is done. It's completely done. It was done in, in July when I forecasted next year. So, I mean, yeah. some of that I think is just my brand teams being a little protective because yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, when you have, it's one of those things where we're kind of competing against ourselves. Yes. I know there's times when basketball or NFL will compete against baseball for shelf space at retail, but let's face it. I mean, we have 70% of the business at this point in time in terms of licenses and in sales. So um, it's really us just not releasing it, yeah. I guess is what I'm saying. I'm kind of incriminating ourselves because we, we have it. So we'll just have to do a better job of making sure that, that all the, 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 the outlets, you know, that need to get it. Cause it's one of those things where I think sometimes we think we've done a good job. Like if we put it on the Knights Lance, our blog, yeah. we're assuming that everybody, reads our blog. Well, I, yeah, I mean, we know that's not true. Right. Yeah. So, um, so noted, and I'll, I'll definitely talk to, you know, to Nick Mativich, our director, senior director of product development and, and, and certainly Kevin Hake on the sales side and make sure that we get that stuff out. Cause I mean, it's not like it's top secret. Um, yeah. I mean, there are some things sometimes that are, we'll just leave them off. We don't yeah. have to put them on there, but the majority of the schedules are done literally a year in advance. I mean, I'm being honest. Cool. Well, thank you again, DJ. I really appreciate your time. No, thanks for having me. And, and, and anytime, you know, I like to come on, on, you know, shows and, and blogs and podcasts and, and things because there's so many, there's so, so many misperceptions about, you know, what's going on in the industry or how we think. And again, I, I don't, I don't fully expect that everybody is going to agree with, us a hundred percent of the time of some of the strategies we have, you know, some of the things we do, some of the brands we build and how we build them. I, I totally get that criticism. I love the passion. I appreciate that people care. So it's not that sort of thing, but I think sometimes it's good for everybody to hear the perspective from which we're working from. There's, we didn't touch upon it today. There's licensing constraints. Often there's things we just simply cannot do that the licensors are not comfortable. Yep. We've had the conversation and asked them, could we? And they've respectfully said, we'd rather you not. Um, 
So, I mean, those things do happen, but we're not going to obviously go out and say, oh, we can't do this because a league partner said we can't do it. So um, sometimes there are things we'd like to do and for whatever reason we can't. So we're disappointed as well. Um, But um, for the most part, you know, I'd like to think that we're receptive to feedback. Um, You know, you and I were talking offline a little bit before we came on here. Um, we, I listen to everything. I mean, I'm very active on social media. Uh, I don't always react because usually when I do, I get, you know, there's always a troll and there's always a hater, but I'm reading everything because that's how I kind of, you know, I go, okay, we need to be aware of, and, and this is a perception. That's what we'd hoped. This is a misperception. And I always tell people in sales, the motto is perception is reality. If you don't like the perception, then you need to try to get it changed. It's yep. as simple as that, right? If you think something is misperceived, then it's your job to try to educate people so the perception will change into the into the light that you think it should be. But um, but to totally ignore feedback or or pretend that it's not there or that everybody's wrong, that's not the way we work. We 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 take feedback. So um, again, um, you know, a lot of people have found my email through various, various ways. So I get a lot of emails and I get a lot of people hit me direct on social media. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, I try to be as open and honest as I can. Um, you know, so I would say if you approach us, particularly me, if you approach respectfully and you don't just hit me over the head right away with what we're doing wrong, we're going to have a nice conversation and, and I'll be able to shed some light on some stuff. And then hopefully we end up may, having a relationship going forward and then I can reach back out and get some feedback. And that's a, a, that I, I, my network has expanded quite a bit over the last six months with people like yourself, Mike, because you know, you, I can't get to everybody. And yep. so, you know, this is nice because you bring some feedback in, you ask some good questions here today. Some I've been asked before, some I haven't been asked before. And it's good because it helps me then to, put ideas in my head of things that I need to consider and my team needs to consider. So, you know, we should do this probably on a quarterly basis if that works for you and you can take questions ahead of time from viewers and, and, you know, I don't mind doing hot topics. That'd be great. I would love that. Before we go, can you share where people can uh, follow along with you? uh, Best place to, to connect with you on social media and that type of thing. Yeah, tw- Twitter. You know, I'm I'm a little older than everybody, so I'm not I'm not as savvy. I'm on I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter, and and I'm on Facebook, and it's my name pretty much every time. I don't okay. have uh, I don't have a, a a nickname, if you will. It's DJ Kazmerzak is is how you find me on Twitter. That's how you find me on Instagram. I'll put yep. the links to yours in the show notes of the of the episode, and so people perfect um, can can find it that way as well. And I, yep. again. DJ, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me.